Okay, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to be at tonight. Just want to say that uh, being Wednesday night class, I, I maybe I ought to say this each time, but being Wednesday night class, we're kind of less uh, formal, we're more casual tonight. We've already kind of been joking around and carrying on a little bit and different things, but we are more casual. And so I desire for our Bible study to be a little bit more casual. If you have anything to, to add to or any questions or any input, uh, that is always welcome. And so I want this to be a time where we can get in God's Word, learn from it, and uh, kind of help one another. That's our desire here. And so we are in Second Samuel chapter 12, and we've been studying the lives of the kings, and we haven't got through too many of them so far. We've talked about uh, Samuel, which of course was the last uh, prophet and priest, uh, but then uh, we looked at Saul, and we've been in David's life for quite a while now. And originally, whenever I started this series, I was planning on just kind of doing extremely brief uh, overview of each of the kings, and I am not able to be brief with anything. <laughs> so you all know that. And but anyway, we've been looking through David's life and learning different lessons and. Uh, we've seen his patience in waiting for God to work and to bring him into the kingdom. He was told at a very young age that he was going to be the king, and then he had to wait some 20 or 25 years to actually become the king. And I don't know about you, but I don't know that I have that much patience to wait patiently on God for 25 years to bring about something that he promised me. I think I would... Uh, doubted, I would think that God forgot about me, or I would accuse God of not fulfilling his promises. But God is perfectly capable to fulfill all of his promises. It's impossible for him to lie. And in his timing, he is able to bring about all things. And so we can take that to heart. Even David, as an example, all of the promises that we find in God's word, he will fulfill in his time. He will not leave one of them unfulfilled. But anyway, David gave us an example of remaining faithful while waiting, but he was a relatable and human example because he did have times where his faith wavered. There was times that he struggled, but he still kept coming back to God will do what he's going to do, what he has promised to do in his timing. We saw that he was uh, faithful even during persecution, that God used the persecution of King Saul chasing after David to refine David and to strengthen him and to shape him into the kind of king that Israel needed. Israel didn't need a, uh, a warrior for a king, although David was a warrior. They needed a shepherd, and David was able to shepherd his people. And so God used that time as he was running from Saul to, uh, to shape him, to mold him, and to make him what he needed to be, to refine him. And one thing that we've brought out from David's life is it tells us several times that David behaved himself wisely. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of a theme. That's something that stuck out to me is just the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we behave ourselves. If we do it in a godly manner, God can bless it. God can use it. God can work with that. If we go about in a carnal and a fleshly manner, if we go about foolishly living our lives, we're going to end up reaping what we sow, and we're going to find that oftentimes that we're going to be reaping rotten fruit, right? And so anyway, uh, so we've seen those things so far, but last week we got to where David had come to the pinnacle of success. He had made it to the top. Uh, he was sitting on the throne of all of Israel. 
He had defeated uh, many of the enemies that was around them. He had sent the uh, the Philistines fleeing away and had a time of uh, relative peace during that time. He had fulfilled his promises to Jonathan and going out and finding Mephibosheth and bringing him into his household and blessing him. Uh, he had brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and put it in a tent there in Jerusalem. He was leading the people of Israel uh, in worshiping and service to God. And we we kind of... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? You ever do that and you just can't think of the word? Especially whenever you can't think of it in English for some of you, right? Yes. <laughs> but anyway, we were pointing out that um, that David did very well politically. He did very well in his public life. He did very well spiritually. He was leading the people. He was an example to the people spiritually. But in his personal life, he had some problems. And we said all of us have weaknesses, and we have different weaknesses, and if we think that we have no weaknesses, then we are fooling ourselves, we are deceiving ourselves. And so if we are wise, we are going to be aware of our weaknesses, we're going to guard against our weaknesses, and the Bible says uh, that we should make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. In other words, guard against those things. Uh, the Bible talks about, as well, the sins that doth so easily beset us. And I've heard different messages and sermons and things about besetting sins. And we have those things, the ones that we continue to struggle with. And David's tended to be women. And if you put yourself in David's position, he was powerful. He was a soldier. Uh, he was wealthy. He became a king. He was a man of means. He was a man of position. And with that, he was a man that was desired. I mean, from an early age, he would walk into the, he would come riding into the city back from battle, and the women would be singing their songs, saw a slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Right. And they were going and singing and dancing before him. Mm -hmm. And so if anyone at that time was a superstar, mm -hmm. it was David. And we know what happens generally whenever people become rich and famous, whenever people have that kind of star power, when they become idols. They end up with all kinds of personal issues to come along with it. David was no different. And though he had such wisdom and behaved himself wisely, though he had a lot of spiritual discernment and a desire to serve God, he still had this thorn in his flesh. He still had this problem that gave him great difficulty in his life. And so one of our main points from last week is that we have to be most careful when everything is going well. Whenever everything is going well in our lives, whenever it seems like all of the pieces are falling into place, whenever the bank account is full, whenever the job is going well, whenever the kids are being haved, and whenever the wife is happy and all these things, that's whenever we have to be the most cautious because we let our guard down. Right. We find even with Israel being an example of this, as God was taking care of them and providing for them and prospering them, it was those times that they were tempted to turn away from God and serve other gods. It was those times whenever they weren't satisfied with God and they were looking to other things, right? And so whenever David had made it to the top, whenever he made it to the pinnacle, whenever he was seeing success all around him, he had beat all of his foes. He had uh, made his place in the throne. He was there as the king over all of the land, it was then that he made the decision 
that he was capable, his military was capable, his people had everything under control. Whenever it came time for the kings to go forth to battle, he stayed home. He said, I've got all this under control. I know what I'm doing, so I don't have to be in my place. He let his guard down. He was supposed to be on the battlefield, and instead, all of his men were on the battlefield. He was at home. He went up to the roof in the cool of the day, and he saw Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop. And rather than saying, I probably shouldn't be looking at another man's wife and going and finding something else to do, he got the binoculars out. <laughs> and that's not in the Bible. I'm just Okay? And so he's looking, and he's lusting, and then he sends someone and says, go get her for me. Though he's already been told that she is a married woman, not only that, she is married to one of his soldiers, one of his uh, most faithful men. And so he goes, he gets her, he spends the night with her, he sends her, and he says, hey, it's good to be king. Sends her back home, and then she sends word to him and says, I'm pregnant. And now he has to find a means to cover it because her husband has been out fighting for him. Not only that, but many of the men that would have been of the age to be with her were out fighting. <laughs> and so now he has to find a cover-up. And we talked about all this last week, but just reviewing this and how David went through and he made these decisions and how one sin led to another. He was so confident, he was so arrogant, so proud that he thought that this was owed to him, that he had the ability to go and intrude into this place that he had no business in being, he thought that he could uh, that he could stay out of his place, that he could let down his guard, that he could engage in a little bit of misbehavior, and it wouldn't affect him or anyone else. But whenever it came back that uh, Bathsheba was pregnant, he invited Uriah, her husband, to come back and give a report from the battle, thinking he would go home, he would sleep with his wife, and he would just assume from then on that the baby was his. But Uriah at that point was more honorable than David. And he says, my place is on the battlefield. All of my soldiers are on the battlefield. And while they are suffering out there, I'm not going to go and enjoy my own bed and my wife and my food. And he slept at the gates. David proceeded to try to get him drunk and said, if he's drunk, he will lose control. And even drunk, Uriah had more control than David did. And he still refused to do it. And he says, well, the only option left... Because heaven forbid, I can't own up to my sin. I've got to kill him. And so he kills one of his most loyal and his greatest soldiers, Uriah, one of his mighty men. And he sends him to the hottest part of the battle, retires from him, and allows him to die. And he says, okay, problem solved. Everything's over with. I have escaped out of this. How wise am I? How great am I that I am able to cover this up and no one will know? As a matter of fact, just to make myself look even better, I will go and marry his widow. Because if I marry his widow, think of how well everyone's going to look at me. You know, how David is taking care of his soldier so much that when his soldier dies, he has taken in his, his widow and taken care of her. So David thought that he had it all figured out. But God was watching. God was aware. And the Bible says, be, sh be sure your sins will find you out. And that isn't necessarily a threat. We often think of it that way. You know, someone's 
getting ready to do something stupid or whatever, be sure your sins will find you out. It's like you're threatening them with God. But the truth of the matter is, there's always consequence to sin. Always. And so anyway, that's what we're going to be looking at today is the consequences of David's sin. So he had thought that he covered it all up. And I'm going to go ahead and I know we looked at chapter 12 last week. I kind of just did a, an oral overview. But I want to go ahead and read the first little part of uh, maybe the first half of chapter 12 to get us going on where we're going to be at. And I want to cover quite a bit of ground, but I'm not going to read everything. Okay? So anyway, chapter 12 and verse number 1. And it says, And the Lord sent Nathan, which Nathan was a prophet, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Could you imagine being David and listening to all of that, how the world would just kind of come crashing down at that point? You know, David is listening to this story as this man has all of these flocks and these herds, and he's so wealthy, and someone's traveling through, and in their culture, if a traveler was coming through, you had to extend hospitality. If someone came knocking on your door said, I'm traveling through the area, I was wondering if you might have a spare bed or somewhere for me to sleep, under their culture, you had to offer them a place to sleep. Okay? And so this is the idea behind the wayfaring man, behind the traveler. And so this rich man said, I don't want to give of my own stuff to this traveler that's coming through. But instead, he goes to this poor man, takes his little pet lamb, kills it, dresses it for his visitor, for the traveler. And David is listening to all of this, and he is becoming angry. He's becoming enraged because this man would be so callous that he would have all of this wealth and all this possessions and he would take that poor little pet lamb and feed it to the traveler. How could someone be so cruel? And as David is raging and he says, that man should die and he should restore it fourfold. He needs to give that guy four lambs and then we're going to, we're going to execute him. That's what he tells him. And then Nathan looks at him, points his finger right in his face and says, David, you are the man. You're the one that did that. And so that would take a, a brave prophet, wouldn't it? to come up to the king and put your finger in his face and say, thou art the man. But David has already passed sentence on himself. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel and delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, 
I would moreover have given thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. And so now David's heart is sunk down to his, to his feet, basically, right? He's about as low as he can go. He says, my sins have found me out. And as Nathan is saying these things, he says, God has given you so much. He has provided so much for you. He has protected. He has put you in this place. And it wasn't enough for you. And you had to go out and try to get something you had no right to. Okay? And so verse number 10, it starts where the Lord is meeting out the consequences. Okay? The chastening, the discipline for what he has done. Because God is disciplining him as a child. I'm making sure not to say punishment because this isn't what it is. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But verse 10, it says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun, for thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Verse 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And so we'll stop there with reading for now. But it gives us a little insight into what's going on here. We're studying through David's life. And uh, as I said, he has went from success to success, but now he has went to failure. And now as a result of his failure, because of his uh, sin that he has committed, there's going to be a major fallout. Okay. There's going to be great effects because of his sin. And uh, as we think about this, it's something for us to keep in mind because there is a temptation for us to minimize sin and minimize the effects of sin. We feel as if sin is not going to affect us, as if it's not going to have that great of results or, or that great of consequences, but sin is always going to cost us far more than we expect. It's going to have a larger price tag than what we're ever willing to pay. The only problem is that generally the price that you pay for sin is later on down the road. It's been said that sin wouldn't be near as much fun if you had to pay for it up front. Right? That would, have, that would change things quite a bit. Yeah. Okay? And so we can even take it all the way back to the very beginning, to uh, Adam and Eve and to the first sin, right? And what Satan did whenever he was speaking to Eve, he tried to minimize the effects of sin. He tried to minimize the seriousness of sin. He tells Eve, uh, thou shalt not surely die. You know, it's not going to have that much of consequences. But God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so the idea behind that is one that's still carried out to this day, is that God is being unfair to you and he's trying to keep something good and pleasurable away from you. And that's what the world thinks to this day, right? They think that God, whenever he says that certain things are sinful, certain things are bad, certain things are wicked, the world, and oftentimes many Christians, feel as if God is just trying to keep us away from fun. Right? 
But the truth of the matter is God has called things sin. God has marked a line and said, you shall not cross this boundary because there is an effect, right? There is a consequence to it. And in Adam and Eve's case, he says, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. For the wages of sin is death, right? And so in that day, they died spiritually. Death is separation. They were separated from God. They can no longer enjoy the relationship with God that they once had. We are all born in sin. We are all born with that uh, relationship severed from God, right? And it is through the blood of Christ that we are able to reconnect, that we can be uh, rejoined, redeemed, brought back to God, right? But it also brought about physical death. And basically, from the time that you take your first breath, you are inching closer and closer to your final one. We might This might seem a little bit pessimistic, but really, life is the process of dying. Aren't y'all happy you came out tonight? Life is the process of dying. Because you are aging and your body is wearing out and you're getting closer and closer from the day that you were born, you're getting closer and closer to the day of your death. And that's depressing, isn't it? So you're saying we were born to die. Essentially. Yes. Because we were born in sin. But don't think of eternal life is it really death. <laughs> just, that's the great thing is that Jesus has changed that. Yeah. He has made a way for us to be reconciled to God and made a way for us to have eternal life. That we might shed this mortal body, we might get rid of this body that... Uh, gets old and has pains and weaknesses and frailties and is wearing out. It says that uh, it's talking about all of creation waxing old as thus a garment, right? It's wearing out. It's like, you know, your trousers that I was patching this week. <laughs> but anyway, but it's waxing old. It's getting old and things. And Jesus has made a way for us to escape that, right? And trying to get back on track to my point here, um, Satan has told us a lie that God doesn't have our best interest at heart, that sin's wages aren't as steep as what they seem like they are, and that God's trying to keep something good away from us. And so constantly he is wrapping up sin in a shiny wrapping in paper and putting it out before us and baiting us in. We latch onto it thinking it's going to be something great. And in the end, it brings forth death, Right? And so as David was looking from his housetop over to Bathsheba, all he could see was the pleasure and was the fun, but he didn't see in the distance the child that would be conceived and would ultimately die. He didn't see that he was going to engage in murder and deception and things. He didn't see that it was going to cause turmoil and trouble in his whole family from that day forward. And basically from this time until David takes his final breath. This is holding, or this is held over him as a shadow, like a specter over over him, to where the rest of his reign, the rest of his kingdom, is not one of victory and one of joy, but it's one that's haunted by his past mistakes. And any of us that have made mistakes understand what that's like. We understand how that hangs over our head, and it continues to haunt us. And as we're going through it, and as we're doing it at the time, it doesn't seem so bad. Okay. And so the reason I'm bringing all of this out and even the, the depressing parts and things is that God understands the cost of sin. The reason why God has ruled some things out of bounds, the reason he has said these things are wicked or these are abominable is because 
of the price that they cost, okay? Because of the consequences that come about. And so God in his love, God in his care for us is telling us, stay away from these things because they are going to harm you, okay? In this passage, we have almost a... a trying to think again of the word. A bit of a mystery, I'll put it that way. We have a mystery, I guess, or something that we're going to have trouble wrapping our minds around. Uh, it's almost like the question we've always heard, which came first, the chicken or the egg? We've all heard that, right? Okay. And so in this, we find that sin results in consequences, right? But consequences come from the sin. We find in this that God tells David, because you have done this, I'm bringing this against you. And so is it that sin causes the consequences or that the consequences naturally proceed from the sin? And the answer is yes. It's both. Have I lost you yet? Halfway? Because sin has natural consequences. There are things that naturally come as a result of sin. In this particular case, the wording in verse number 11, it says that, Behold, okay, verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee. So it's as if God is the one that is wielding the, the means of chastening. That he is the one meeting out the discipline. Okay. And so I guess if I wanted to illustrate this, I could tell my children, don't do this. Uh, I'm not going to give out any specifics. But I can say, don't do this one thing. And you know what's going to end up happening? They're going to do it. And because they do that one thing, then the what I knew was going to happen is going to happen to them. There is going to be a direct effect from that. They're going to get hurt. Okay. I can give an actual example. Emily's always the example on this one. Was, uh, there was the time whenever uh, she was just little. She's probably Melody's age. And Les had some of her, uh, had her straight iron for her hair setting out on the bathroom sink. Okay. And she told Emily, don't touch that. It's hot. First thing Emily did, touched it, burnt the tips off her fingers. Okay. And she learned it was hot. She'd go around hot, hot, hot. Every time she seen it, she pointed it as hot. Okay? And so told her not to do it. She did it. She got hurt. Okay? But then a lot of times after that disobedience, there's also a discipline that takes effect as well. You know, you come through and you, you spank them. You uh, punish them in some way to help prevent that from happening again. Now, that time, I don't think there was anything extra. The consequences was enough. Okay? <laughs> She learned her lesson from that. And so that's what I'm trying to bring out here with David is that sin has its own consequences packaged in with it, right? And so if we think of a different sins and think of the consequences that come along, okay? If you are engaging in different vices, drinking and smoking and things like that, there are natural consequences that come along with that. You end up harming your physical body by being a bad steward, by taking in those vices that are harmful to it, right? The packaging comes along. You end up with cirrhosis of the liver. You end up with lung or throat, mouth cancer, things like that, right? 
Also with drinking, you get drunk, you end up with wrecked cars, you end up with penalty points, you end up with uh, maybe a little bit of time in jail and some run-ins with the guards. Shortened life. Shortened life. Trouble with work. Whenever you can't get away from the bottle long enough to get to your job, you end up getting fired and now you don't have any money to buy your alcohol with. Right? These are natural consequences of these things. But if we look at other consequences, what about lying? What's the consequence, natural consequences of lying? You're eventually going to get found out. I've always heard that in order to be a liar, you better have a good memory. Right? Because if you're going to lie, you have to remember what lie you told to which person. What did I tell them about that? I can't remember what I told. And you get found out. An honest person doesn't have to have a good memory. They don't. Because the truth is the truth no matter what. I don't have to remember what story I told you the last time I saw you. And so that's one of the effects of lying. Not only that, but also the breakdown of trust. Right? Breakdown of relationships. And so those things are consequences of dishonesty. Uh, what's some other sins of people, not personally, okay? But what's some sins of people deal with? Nobody wants to participate in this one? <laughs> I'm, miss, I'm missing out a little bit. Okay, we're... We're taking. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, sins and their natural consequences. That uh, sin is front loaded with consequ- consequences. Mm-hmm. Okay. How about adultery? What's the consequences for adultery? Okay. If a person is married, you're going to lose your family, right? STDs. STDs. <laughs> Those are built in there. Whenever someone is promiscuous, you have a lot bigger chance of. Catching something that doesn't wash off. Okay. Uh, for women, unwanted pregnancies. Like Bathsheba. Okay. You're going to start having uh, uh, trust issues. You're going to start having extra baggage to carry into future relationships. All of those things are just natural consequences. It's not like God's going to be punishing you. That's just the results of what you've done. Okay. And so whenever God says, don't commit adultery, why? Because it's going to harm you, it's going to harm your family, it's going to harm your children, it's going to harm your future relationships, it's going to harm all of these things. You commit adultery, it is going to cost you exponentially, okay? Don't bear false witness, don't lie. Why? Because the truth is going to find you out, no one's going to trust you, and you're going to make yourself miserable because of all of the... uh, all of the fallout from those lies that come back to you, right? You know, honor your father and your mother. There's, I'm just going through the Ten Commandments. Okay, what's the natural consequences of dishonoring your parents? Not even talking about, you know, them disciplining you, them correcting you. But a lot of the things that they're going to be teaching and a lot of the things that they're going to be uh, able to help and counsel and guide you on whenever you have no honor or no respect for them, you've just cut off basically a lifeline that God has given you to help you to get on in life. Right? Remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. God says, hey, you need to rest at least one day out of the week. Yeah. You become a workaholic and you don't rest your body, your body will decide to rest you. Exactly. That's what happens. 
There's been plenty of people who've put themselves in a hospital bed or put themselves out of commission because they have not stewarded well their life and their time. They haven't given it rest whenever it needed to be. These are just simple examples, right? Mm-hmm. You know, thou shalt not kill. Do we even need to go to that one? <laughs> you kill someone, there's going to be someone's looking to kill you. And that's even without looking at the government consequences for it. There's also the two of uh, just to, you know, kill someone who had made like a lifetime of differences. And there's too many things you cannot even know what you right. have put uh, an end. Right. Yeah, the life that you end, you have no idea yeah. the the chain reaction. There's, uh, I'm not going to get into this, but there's the idea of the butterfly effect. Anyone ever heard of that? Yeah. Bruno has. My family has because I talked about it before. The butterfly effect is simply uh, how a small action can be multiplied to have greater and greater effects, such as Bruno misses the the train this morning, and as a result, he has to take a, a cab, and because he takes a cab, he ends up, you know, missing an accident or getting in, you know, things like that. It's like things he could never even anticipate happens. Okay, and so that's kind of what Bruno was talking about, you know, because you have committed this sin, because you have done this thing, because you have killed someone, you snuffed out that life, and who knows, maybe you killed the person who's going to have the solution for cancer. Mm-hmm. Or even if a grandchild of the person, you don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, you have no idea what you're doing there, and so you're taking the position of God in your own hands, and so these are just all things that come about as natural consequences without even factoring in God bringing about chastisement on someone. Okay. Now I said a minute ago, there's a difference between chastisement and punishment. Does anyone know what the difference is? Chastisement's when you, when you get put back in place for learning. Okay. So chastisement or chastening is geared toward learning, correction. Yeah. Okay. Punishment is just, you're getting this because you did this and that's it. Yeah. So punishment is punitive, okay? Because you did this, I'm going to do this to you. Chastisement is because you did this, I'm going to do this to correct you, okay? So the government, the law, is punishment. It's punitive. Right. You were speeding, I give you a fine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's just... The way it is, cause and effect. It shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. In my opinion. But parenting should be chastening. Yeah. It should be discipline. It should be training. And so I'm doing this so that you don't do this again and so you go the right direction. And so God, whenever he's working in our lives, it is never punitive, okay, for his children at least. I guess hell is punitive. You sinned, the wages of sin is death, punitive. That's punishment. But for a child of God, it is chastening. Okay? Despise not the chastening of God. If you be without chastisement, then you are bastards and not sons. Okay? For who the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So this idea of chastening, it is training just like you would train a child. No, that wasn't right. You need to do it this way. If you do this, then you're going to get hurt. Right? And it can have a physical aspect. It can have a what would appear to be a punishment, but the entire 
purpose behind it is changed. Okay? Because behind punishment is justice. You did the crime, you do the time. Behind chastening or discipline is love. I love you too much to allow you to continue going the wrong direction. I'm going to try to correct yeah. your behavior so that you go the right behavior or the right way and this doesn't happen again. Right. Okay? So I bring all that out to say that with David, God is chastening him as a child. He's saying because you have stepped out of bounds, because you have done this sin and murder, adultery, there's two of them, bearing false witness, he broke almost all the Ten Commandments in this thing. Okay? So if you want to argue that the Old Testament people were saved by works, no. Okay? But anyway, he broke like almost all the Ten Commandments, and God comes to him. He does repent. He comes to God. He confesses his sin, and he puts himself in God's hands. Okay? Basically says, God, do with me whatever you will. You have two psalms that were written during this time. The 51st Psalm, which is a great song, a psalm of repentance, and I believe it's the 32nd Psalm that were written during this time that was showing what David was going through in his mind, his heart, his soul, uh, because of the sin that was in his life. Okay? And so anyway, uh, the Lord comes to him and says, you are going to have these repercussions, these consequences, these results for your sin so that you will not do it again. So that you'll understand the severity of the sin that you have committed. So that you'll realize how uh, how great the responsibility you have on your shoulders is. This is something else that's big because of David. David was the king. Mm-hmm. David was in a place of authority, but he was also in a place of responsibility. And that's something that's lost on a lot of people today, not realizing the responsibility with authority. A lot of people say, oh, authority, that means power. No, that means responsibility. And so he says, David, all of the country is looking at you. You have led them uh, politically. You have given them victories. You have led them spiritually and showed them how to worship. And now you're leading them in the wrong place. You're leading them into sin. And if I don't deal with you about this, then what does it say about me? What does it say about my law? What does it say about my relationship with you? And you're going to lead Israel off into sin. So God says, as a leader, to whom much is given, much will be required, right? And so he says, David, there's going to be results. There's going to be consequences for your sin. Now, if you look back and see what he said, David said there in verse number six, he shall restore the lamb fourfold. That was David's words. This man that has done this must make restitution fourfold. Okay? Now I want to start out from this chapter. I want to go forward a little bit. And I want to show you that David made restitution fourfold. Okay? David killed Uriah. Okay? And so as you go through and look at him, just over in the next chapter... They're not even in the next chapter. Further in this chapter, um, we find that the child that was conceived by this act of adultery, it died on its seventh day. Mm -hmm. One child dead. Mm -hmm. 
There's no name to this child because the Jews named their children on the eighth day whenever they were circumcised. Mm-hmm. It died on the seventh day. Okay? So, as one child born with no name, no celebration, no nothing. Okay? So he has this child dead. If we come on to chapter number 13, we have a man by the name of Amnon. Amnon is David's oldest son, the heir apparent to the king. Okay? So as being the oldest child of the king, he's the one that should be taking the throne. But remember, David had multiple wives, multiple children by those multiple wives, and he had a bit of struggle between his children because of his sins, right? And so anyway, Amnon lusted after his half-sister Tamar, and he raped her. And her full brother, Absalom, waited a full two years, plotting... Amnon's death, and he killed Amnon, David's heir. Two children dead. Okay? So Absalom ran away, was gone for about three years, came back, was there for about five years, was reunited with his father, and then he began a plot of deception, and he started uh, winning over the hearts of the people. He sat at the gate and he counseled them and gave them advice and he befriended many of the people and had like a almost this public relations campaign going on so everybody liked him and he got to the place where he was declared king in Hebron and ran David out of town. And then whenever the battle finally began, Absalom ended up hanging from a tree by his hair. If you're familiar with the story, And Joab, David's uh, chief of his military, finds him, thrusts him through with darts, and kills him. Three children dead. And then after David dies, Solomon becomes king. And Adonijah goes to Solomon's mom and says, Talk to Solomon that I may uh, have David's, my dad's, concubine for my wife. Okay, And that might sound a little bit odd, but in their culture and in their time, the concubines and the wives of the king went to his successor. So to take the king's wives or concubines was a claim to the throne. And Solomon saw it as such. And he says, my brother Adonijah is trying to make a claim to the throne. Okay, he had already tried to do it once while David was still alive. He tried to set himself up as king, and David and Bathsheba made Solomon king. Now Adonijah is trying to come a different way after David's dead, take his concubine, get a claim to the throne, and try to oust Solomon in some way. So guess what Solomon does? He kills Adonijah. Four children dead. David repaid what he had done fourfold, just as he had said. Okay? There are consequences to our sins. Okay? Now if we just go back from this, I know I skipped over about 12 chapters there in telling those different stories. And we're going to look at them just a little bit closer, but not too close. But as we look at this here, uh, David, as I said, he had problems with women. He had problems with his lusts. And his children are watching him commit these sins. 
One thing that people often deceive themselves into is saying my sins won't affect anyone but me. And that is a lie straight from the devil because sin always affects other people. There is always unintended casualties whenever we sin. And so anyway, his children are watching him do these things. And there is a common saying, and I believe that it holds true, is that what the parents do... uh, now I'm, I'm losing it here. What the parents do um, in, what's the word here? This has happened three times already. <laughs> yeah, and I know English, okay? Yeah, that's my, it's my first language, my only language. Okay, so what, what parents do in moderation, that's the word I'm looking for. What parents do in moderation, their children will do in excess. Yes. Has anyone ever heard that? What parents do in moderation, their children will do in excess. Okay? And so with David, he is setting an example for his children. And they are seeing dad going out marrying multiple women. They're seeing dad go out and uh, take another man's wife, cover up the sin, murder the husband. Right? They're seeing him do this. They are grown at, many of them are grown at this time. And so... You wonder how it is that Amnon is lusting after his half-sister. He's seeing her from day to day, and it says that he becomes sick of love for her. That means that he's lovesick like a puppy dog. He's infatuated by his half-sister. And now in our modern-day thinking, in our culture, it's like, that's his half-sister. That's disgusting. But anyway, he is infatuated by her, he is lusting after her, and as the king's son and the heir apparent to the throne, he says, why shouldn't I have her? Mm -hmm. And also there's a famous line in there, Amnon had a friend. Amnon had a friend by the name of Jonadab, and Jonadab says, hey, you're going to be the king, who's to say what you can and can't have? If you want her, pretend that you're sick, she'll come in to take care of you, and you can have your way with her. And that is a startling warning for us to be careful about our friends and to be careful who we're taking advice from. Because no matter how wicked our desires are, you'll be able to find someone that will encourage you to do it. And so Amnon had a friend and his friend said, if you want it, go for it. Right? And then after Amnon went for it, Where was his friend? We find two years later, whenever Amnon is killed, and word comes to David and says, oh, they have slain all of your children. Amnon's friend, Jonadab, speaks up and says, nah, they just killed Amnon. He knew about the plot. He knew what was going on, and he just... Who cares about Amnon now, right? Amnon had a friend. And so anyway... Amnon was following in his father's footsteps. Amnon was following his father, even though David was a man after God's own heart. David was a mighty man of valor. David behaved himself wisely. In this area, he behaved himself foolishly, and he passed it on to his children. And now whenever Amnon does this, whenever he rapes his half-sister, word comes to David, and what does David do about it? Anyone know what he did about it? 
Nothing. What could he do about it? He did the same thing. And all of us parents have had this happen from time to time. Your children do something and they're like, did you not ever do that when you were a kid? Right? What are you, some kind of a hypocrite? It was okay for you, but not for me. So that brings out something for us, is that whenever we sin, we are discrediting ourselves. We are taking away our ability to be able to help others and to be able to mitigate some of these things. And so David, whenever he came to this position, his children messed up severely, but David, because of shame and because of guilt, could not confront it, so he remained silent. And because he remained silent, there was no justice, there was no discipline, there was nothing that happened, and Absalom was mad because his sister had been used and abused in such a way. And for two years, Absalom stood on it and said, look at what Amnon did, and my father has done nothing about it. He has suffered no consequences for treating my sister like a harlot. And so Absalom stood on this and stood on this and finally came to the day that he was shearing his sheep. They were having a big feast, a big festival. And Absalom said, hey, David, or hey, dad, I guess. Be respectful here. Hey, dad, why don't you and all the family come up? We're having a party because I'm shearing my sheep. And come on up here. and We're going to have a great big dinner. It's going to be like Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever. And David says, no, I'm not going to do that because if I come up and bring all of my entourage with me, it's going to be a burden on you because he's the king. He doesn't come alone. Right. And so he says, well, why don't you allow your son, Amnon, that's going to rule after you? If you can't come, why don't you let your heir come up and bring the rest of the family? And David says, oh, okay, why not? Because Absalom has laid low all this time and pretended like he was unaffected. But in the background, there was bitterness that was consuming him. And so whenever he gets all of his brothers around the table, he instructs his servant and says, when I give you the signal, you follow on him and you kill him. And if anything happens, I will take the blame. And so they do. And they kill Amnon. Because David had done nothing about it, because David couldn't do anything about it, because he was guilty of the same kind of things. Right. You see the consequences of our sin? We lose our respect. We lose our um, ability to confront sin. We lose our credibility whenever we engage in these things. Uh, just a story here. Um, I think I've told this before. But a pastor that, um, pastor that pastored our church back in the States whenever Les and I had gotten married, not long after we got married, uh, he was talking about going out and witnessing to people and sharing the gospel with people. And at that time, that he, um, he chewed tobacco. Mm -hmm. And so as he'd go along, he would have a big chew of tobacco in his mouth, and he would be sharing the gospel with someone while he's chewing tobacco. That might sound weird to us here from this culture, but from where we were at, not so much. Yeah. Okay? But anyway, as he was talking to this man, the man looked at him and he says, I'm not going to listen to anything that you have to say as long as you have that stuff in your mouth. He says, you have no credibility with me while you're doing something that I perceive to be a sin. Right? 
And so he prayed and he said, God, help me. If this is going to hinder my witness, my testimony for you, help me to get rid of it. I can't do it myself. And he went out and bought another pouch of tobacco. And he opened it up and he went to get some of it. And there was a rat tail in his pouch of tobacco. And he threw it away and he quit. <laughs> okay. But the idea here is our sin causes us to lose credibility. Because for our family, for instance, you know, you start telling them about God and telling them how to walk right and, and to stay away from sin and to obey what the Lord has to say. And they look at your life and they see a hypocrite and they see all the sins in your life. You have no credibility. You try to witness your friends, your family, your neighbors, and they see you sinning, no credibility. Right. I heard a story from a preacher this week. He said that he was uh, a teenager in school and he hadn't been saved very long. And he was trying to be a good witness and he was sharing the gospel with friends and people around him and things. And he had family who was definitely not saved. And that would push his buttons from time to time. And they were actually, they were working on a car. And two of his family members, two of his cousins, I think it was, was standing up by the car just talking and whatnot. He was under the car and he was struggling and the rich the wrench that he was working, the spanner. There you go. There you go. I had to I had to convert there. The spanner that he was using slipped and ripped a big hunk of skin off of his finger. And he used some language he shouldn't have been using. And his two cousins didn't ask, Are you okay? They said, Is that the preacher we hear down there? Right? And so this is the idea of our sin causes us to lose credibility with other people. It's not just the consequences. It's not just because of the wickedness that comes. It's also the credibility that we have with our friends, our family, with our witness whenever we do these kind of things. And so anyway, that happened, and Absalom killed his brother. And as I said, he went away. Absalom was uh, David's son by a princess. Remember, the kings would have... Uh, marriages of convenience, of uh, diplomacy. And so he married a princess, a daughter of a neighboring king. And so whenever Absalom did this, he had a good place to flee to. He was widely, or he was easily accepted by his grandfather, the king of the neighboring nation. And he went and he hid there. And so he was there and he was hidden by the king. He was kept safe by his grandfather in the neighboring nation for two years. And David hesitated to bring him back. And through treachery, Joab causes him to bring Absalom back and only halfway forgives him. He says he can come back to the, to the nation, but he can't see my face. Yeah. And so for the next five years, Absalom says, what was the good in me coming back if I can't even have a relationship with my father? What good is it me being here if he won't forgive me? And so he starts trying to get Joab, David's right-hand man, to get him an audience with his father. Yeah. Joab ignores him until he burns Joab's field. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so finally he's restored to his father. He's allowed to come and go. And as I said, he is used to trickery. He's used to deceit. And this is, as I said, he wins over the hearts of the people by behaving himself wisely for the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. And so as the people are coming to David, he says, you know, David's awful busy. It's a shame you don't have anyone to listen to your grievances. I wish that I was in the position that I was able to help you. I would do anything I could for you. 
and they come and they talk to him. And he's sympathetic and he's kind and he's caring. He's solving their problems. He's on their side. He's a politician mm-hmm. wanting to get elected. Yeah. He wins the hearts of the people. And then he becomes Saul, yeah. pursuing after David. Runs David out of his own kingdom, out of his own palace. David, while he's fleeing, Absalom goes up on David's rooftop. The same rooftop that David was on whenever he looked over and saw Bathsheba bathing, sets up a tent on his rooftop and sleeps with his dad's concubines out in the open for all to see. That's messed up, isn't it? You all think your families are messed up. Okay? But what did God say was going to happen? Verse 11 of chapter 12. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. And that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. But not only that, David is reaping what he sowed, because he couldn't control himself with women, Amnon couldn't control himself with women. And Absalom tried to control the kingdom by women because he was taking hold of David's kingdom by taking his wives, his concubines. This is all fallout from what David had done. This is all the ongoing consequences of it. And so sin is forbidden because of the harm it causes But God also allows all the harm. He allows the cost of it for chastening and for discipline. Something great about David in all of this, I know it seems like we're really slagging on David for for his sin and its consequences. But the thing about David is that whenever he sinned, when he was confronted by his sin, whenever he realized what he had done, he repented. He confessed it before God. And he basically put himself at God's uh, at God's hands, at His, mercy. at His mercy. There you go. He put himself at God's mercy mm-hmm. and said, "I sinned. I messed up, and I don't deserve any of these things." Yeah. But he put himself in God's mercy, yeah. and God forgave him. Too often, what we end up doing whenever we sin is we try to hide it, mm-hmm. we try to cover it up. The Bible says that the man who covers his sin shall not prosper. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. And just because he forgives and cleanses doesn't mean that he does away with the consequences. Yeah. Whenever I preach at the jail all the time, I told the guys, God will forgive you of your sins, but it doesn't mean they're going to turn you loose. Right? right? You go out and you drive drunk and you run off the road and you get in an accident and you lose your leg just because you get it right with God doesn't mean it grows back. Right. Okay, there's still consequences that follow. And so anyway, David had, David had God's forgiveness. David, I believe, was a saved man in the Old Testament sense. I believe we'll see David one of these days in glory. Okay? But David had greatly complicated and messed up his life because of the choices that he made. But another important thing about all this, remember how I said all of the persecution 
built David and grew David and drew him to God, mm -hmm. so did the chastening. Yes. And so there was building and shaping and forming that came from without, from Saul and from waiting and from all of those things. But God was also working and shaping and building him through his failures as well. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we come to the bright end of this. Okay? Because failure is never final. It's not permanent. God is able to take our mess and make a masterpiece. God is able to take our mess ups and do great things with them if we're willing to confess and forsake. Okay? And so if we look in David's position here, David ended up marrying Bathsheba. Okay? They lost the child. And... Sorry, I had a, a, a side thought. I don't have time to chase. But anyway... Mary Bathsheba, they lost the child, and then they ended up having another child by the name of Solomon. Solomon ended up becoming king. He ended up being the wisest man that ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. He ended up being uh, the one who built the temple. He ended up being the one who wrote the Proverbs, most of them, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he ended up being in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. Right? And so God took this mess. Bathsheba shouldn't have been David's wife. But God took David's mess and wrote that into God's story and brought about Jesus through that mess. Okay? He brought about good things through the bad, and he can do the same thing in our lives. Our failures are never final if we will get it right with God and turn to him and allow him to make something out of it. It doesn't mean that there's not still going to be hurt. It doesn't mean there's not going to be scars. It doesn't mean that Satan's not going to have plenty of ammunition to throw up. And I believe that's probably part of the reason why David had so much trouble with confronting the sins of his own, his own children or even some of his men that were under him. He had trouble con confronting their sin because I guarantee you Satan was whispering in his ear. The accuser of the brother was telling him, but what about you? Yeah. What did you do? Who are you to speak up on this? Because anyone who's ever sinned, anyone that's ever messed up, I guarantee you Satan is going to be on your shoulder. He's going to be whispering in your ear. And every time something comes up where you have the opportunity to grow, where you have the opportunity to make a decision, he's going to be there discouraging you. And he is going to, every time that we sin, every time we leave, let that junk into our lives, we are giving the enemy ammunition to use against us. Yeah. Now the word of God gives us ammunition to use against Satan. Word of God is the sword of the spirit. We tell Satan to shut up. It's already been forgiven. Right? Mm -hmm. But anyway, with all that being said, I'm out of time. And so we've seen all of the fallout. Well, not all of it, but a lot of the fallout from David's failure. Does anyone have any... Any comments or any questions or anything this evening? Okay, if no one has anything? I think I have something. You think you have something? Okay. Won't hold it back, but it's been there even for the Sunday. I didn't want to bring it up. I think it's a. It's a it's mostly there's answered it in my mind already. Mm -hmm. And with scriptures, there's reason, but I feel like 
I need to, to ask this. The reason why consequences on sin. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. When someone sin, they have to be consequences. Both mm -hmm. both sides. Mm -hmm. Being spiritual, there's consequences of that, mm -hmm. which make it much easier in our days when it comes to repentance. Mm -hmm. And uh, in uh, flesh, you bear consequences as you mm -hmm. explain a lot of differences that comes with it. Mm -hmm. But here's the question. When the when one sin, not in our time, mostly in, I, I, I try to go back even in Genesis and mm -hmm. try to collect some references there, but I can't get through of them. Why does God was extending punishment to next generation? Okay. You look at uh, Adam mm -hmm. and Eve you will surely die. Mm -hmm. That is for spiritual, I guess. Mm -hmm. Even though they die bodily as well, it's still part of it. And we are studying about David. And verse 11, 12, downward, mm -hmm. it seems like these things that are happening, you're just closing mm -hmm. on them. The son of David do the, 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 the same as God has promised to do it. Mm -hmm. But the question still remaining, why does God have to extend sin to next generation? I'm the one who sin. Mm -hmm. I take full responsibility of my sin. Mm -hmm. Will not just God punish me? If I have to die for my sin, yes, I did. I don't think it will hurt that much because I know that's what I deserve to get. But why does it have to go for next generation? And uh, this is only in in in, in, in uh, Old Testament. I totally understand mm -hmm. how God forgive and uh, how it comes for one to get mm -hmm. himself out of that. Mm -hmm. In 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 other words, it will be like generation case. Yeah. So I know how to get yourself out of of that case, but again, why does God allow, and, and I'm seeing it repeating multiple times, and, and, and it goes a long way until when Jesus mm -hmm. came and gave himself so that one will have getting saved from those mm -hmm. things. Okay, well, one thing, under the law, it took away... Uh, General, generational punishment. Mm. Under the law, it said that every man would be punished for his own sin. So you couldn't punish the children for the sins of the parents. Okay? And so that happened at the law. That, And um, even with Korah as an example, whenever the children of Israel were in the, the wilderness, Korah came, rose up against Moses and God put judgment on Korah. The earth swallowed him up and his tent and all the things that belonged to him. But the sons of Korah separated themselves from their father and didn't partake of his cursing. And some of the Psalms that we have in the book of Psalms are from the sons of Korah. Okay? So they chose God over their father. But to answer your question on that is we can't blame it on God. 
Okay? Because the consequences that are built into sin automatically affect more than just you. You even said yourself, okay, that, okay, if I sin, well, why can't I just die for my own sin? Well, what happens if you do die for your own sin? Then your children are fatherless. So they're still affected by your sin. So sin's going to have an effect on generations no matter what. And so what we take from that is not, okay, God's unjust, God's punishing other people. It's I'm making decisions that's going to have generational effects. Okay? And so the the sins of the parents are carried on through the, the children just because of the flesh and humanity and the way that it works. Uh, it goes back to what I said, what you do in moderation, your children do in excess. It's because of the example. There's more that's caught than taught. Yeah. Okay? For another way of putting it. And so, okay, you have a husband and wife that are married, have a horrible marriage, horrible family dynamic, mm-hmm. constant fighting and abuse and all of those things, and they're raising children, and the children see it. The parents end up getting divorced. The children come out of that. They get their own marriages. And unless God intervenes, unless they get saved and have mentors, counseling, biblical worldview, something to short circuit that, change it, it's going to continue because they learn from their parents what it means to be a spouse. And so as they were brought up in that, the only way they know to be a husband or to be a wife is fighting. It is constant trouble and it's all this chaos and turmoil in the house. And they're going to end up raising their children the same way. And they're going to end up having the same sorts of relationships. Even in uh, uh, trying to teach my kids as they're growing up and everything, I said, whenever you are looking at a potential spouse, pay attention to the family dynamic. Yeah. Okay? When you're looking for a potential spouse, how does that guy treat his mother? How does the father treat his wife? Because that's a, an insight into how he's going to treat you. Okay? And so this is just the way that it's passed on. It's not that God is putting a generational curse. Just as a a silly example here, maybe not so silly, okay? More than likely, and I apologize ahead of time if this is offensive, okay? More than likely, if you have two fat parents, they're going to have a fat kid. Okay? And it's not genetics. It's because they learned how to eat and their relationship with food from those two people. Is that offensive? No. You're learning about relationships, whether it's from with people or with food. If the father is a serial adulterer, son will be too. Father's abusive, son probably will be too. That's a fix. Yeah. Children sit or Negative examples also. Mm-hmm. You're just seeing the bad example all the time. You're thinking, oh, I don't want to be like that. Exactly right. <laughs> and so in order to break that chain, I don't want to call it a curse because there's this yeah. there's this bad doctrine out there of generational curses as if, yeah. you know, you have, like there's some kind of a spiritual hold on oh, you that you can't get. It's not spiritual. It's no. something that's just ingrained in you. It's taught you. It's something that you pick up because of the environment. Okay? But anyway... There's a lot of kids that's going to be brought up in that, and they're going to say, I was treated in this way, and I'm going to take steps. I'm going to intentionally make sure that I don't repeat it. My dad never had a kind word for me. He never treated me this way or that way. He beat me. He abused me. 
I'm not going to do that to my child. And we have actually seen that. And I have seen that, yeah. My dad was a bad alcoholic. I will not touch alcohol. I'm not saying that personally. My dad's not. I'm just saying that. <laughs> but I'm saying that as an example, okay? Yeah. And so you intentionally have to work at getting rid of those things that so that you don't so repeat hard. it. it and it so is hard, hard, yes. And so it takes you intentionally. Now my father is Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I try uh, like uh, like him, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because my father, uh, okay, not uh, Christians, mm-hmm. long time, was long time. And uh, when I look at him, I don't want to do like him. It's not inside me. Mm-hmm. It's uh, very difficult for me. And then pray for him first. Uh, but um, I understand if my father told me something I don't know, I don't want it because it's sin. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it. I understand mm-hmm. it's sin. Because I know um, God created me. I'm new. I'm, bo- I'm born. Yeah. You know? yeah. yes. You're a new creature, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and to another way mm-hmm. for me. It's my experience. Yes. I can do it. And that's, that's a very important point that you brought out is the difference that God makes in life. Exactly. And so we don't want to discount that. Someone who's been brought up in these bad positions and whatnot, they come to Christ, they start following Him, and He completely changes everything. Yes. And there are so many stories that I can go back and look at of this person who comes from a horrible past, horrible background. They get saved, God transforms them, and they are night and day different from where they came from. Yes. So, yeah, God intervenes. All good points. Anything else? I just think it wasn't that hard for me to break away from the bad example. Mm-hmm. I think the hardest part was actually the short-term consequences, you know, when your parent is well, causing problems and you mm-hmm. have to deal with that yeah. and you're just a child, then it's not so nice, but... The long term, not picking up the exact same habit, uh, wasn't that hard for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I had to deal with the, you know, the short-term consequences. Yeah. yeah, and so everyone's going to be different. I know I've, I've talked to people before. They said, I'm never going to be like my father. They were just like it. 100%. 100%. I've seen it. But I've seen the opposite, too, where they try, I mean they put great effort into making sure they don't repeat the mistakes and that they learn from it. And then we can even bring it further a little bit more. Whenever we get saved, we realize how messed up we were before we got saved. And then we intentionally put distance between ourselves and what we used to be Mm -hmm. and use that to grow from. I think the character, that's something that's obviously very influenced Mm -hmm. by parents, but and it happens that's something I think too obvious to, to just uh, pick up like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll call it a night. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We thank you, Lord, for David and for the... Uh, the transparency of his story and how it reveals to us so much. And I know we've spent weeks and weeks just going through his life and the things that you you worked in his life, Lord. And we want to uh, learn from his good example as well as his bad. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to see the seriousness of sin. 
Help us, Lord, to do our, our very best to walk with you and to guard against our weaknesses and not follow in his footsteps in these sins. But Lord, I pray, Lord, for the times that we do fail, the times that we do fall into things that we shouldn't, Lord, that we would also follow his example in returning to you and running back to you instead of away from you. And Lord, allowing you to restore and allowing you to put together that which was broken, Lord. And we just thank you for the, the fact that you do that and what a great and loving Savior we have. And Lord, we just love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. And amen.